The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, the mood was not dovish enough. Despite a stock market sell-off and political pressure from self-professed low-rate guy President Trump, the Federal Reserve decided to raise rates for the fourth time this year. Though policymakers signaled they may soon pause their monetary tightening campaign, trimming the number of rate hikes from three to two in their forecast for 2019. Right after the decision, Scarlett and Tom Keene sat down for a wide-ranging interview with former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan. They got his thoughts on Fed policy, his outlook for the U.S. economy and financial markets, as well as his concerns about the current political environment. They started by asking the former chair if he believed Jay Powell was the central banker to the world. He is, and there's very good reason why he is. First, the institution itself carries with it that coverage. But uh, I've, I've known the current chairman for quite a while, and I'm very comfortable with them. We're very comfortable with GDP estimates. The Fed has come out with numbers today. Michael McKee is telling uh, those numbers to us. Mr. Chairman, you have a much uh, more difficult, a more challenging view forward for the American economy. How do you get to the acclaim of your recession call of the last few days? Well, uh, I don't think the recession call is exactly right, but it is certainly the case that when you look out over the horizon, the forces that have been, been driving productivity growth to ever slower paces up until very recently uh, are going to continue. And that is, as I've mentioned uh, many times, I think probably with you as well, uh, that there's been a very long-term trend where the rise in entitlements in the American economy are eating into the gross domestic savings. And the gross domestic savings, in turn, is what creates gross domestic investment after you adjust for international changes. And gross domestic investment is the key variable for productivity growth. And while the productivity numbers look a little better in the last uh, few weeks, maybe a few months, They've been at about 1.2% for a long time, uh, the last five years indeed. And that's well under where they used to be when it was 2.5% and more. So as far as I see it, so long as you have the entitlements eating into the savings market, 
uh, we're not getting, we're not going to get any sustained economic growth. Okay. So those are some massive secular shifts that you're talking about. Um, Chairman Greenspan, when you spoke with us in January of 2018, so 11 months ago, you said there were two bubbles. There was a stock market bubble and a bond market bubble. Are we still in bubble mode? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, these are fundamental economic forces. For example, uh, the pressure on the, uh, long-term interest rates is uh, a very common phenomenon at this time in the business cycle. And uh, I don't want to say too much about the forecast because I think it's very difficult to judge. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Anyway, uh, very difficult to judge, but based on your concern over the economy, over these structural forces at work, have we seen the the 10-year yield peak, for instance? uh, No, uh, not at all. On the contrary, I think the trend is in the other direction. Alan Greenspan, I want to bring up a chart, which I did as my chart of the year, and I was, of course, (laughs) thinking of your tenure at the Fed, and it is something that maybe we will think of next year that Chairman Powell will be focused on and all of Washington, and that is the twin deficits. You, of course, remember the twin deficits of the Reagan years. You were on the watch uh, then. There was an improvement and then a huge worsening. You have been out front with concern over trillion-dollar deficits and the president's trade war as well. Will we revisit and will we succeed, uh, exceed, I should say, the twin deficits of the recent decades? Well, uh, we're about to get into a trillion-dollar deficit, and that looks, as far as the data are concerned at the moment, as far as we can read out into the future. Uh, There's a very important issue of the aging of the American population. Uh, Given the extraordinary spread of entitlements since uh, 1965, uh, we're in a position now where we have got to turn this around, right. and I don't see that we're in the process of doing it. Uh, Chairman Greenspan, we've had wonderful conversations at Bloomberg across all of our shows today with smart ec- econo- economists, and so much of the debate is about a traditional Phillips curve analysis. I think of Willem Bowder joining us this morning from LSE and from Citigroup, and others discarding the old models of the Phillips curve. Should we discard the models that were used on your watch? No, I just think that the Phillips curve was misspecified in the earlier years. Uh, It's not unemployment and inflation. Uh, You basically have to bring productivity into that equation. Uh, There was a very big dispute at the Fed in the latter part of the 1990s where uh, I uh, and some of my colleagues on the board uh, were confronted with an issue which looked as though productivity growth was rising significantly, Yes. even though the data did not immediately show that. And we argued that if that is the case, then you could get the unemployment rate below 4% <laughs> right. without inflation. I brought this and exa- that's That's what happened. Right, Chairman. Absolutely. I brought this up with Willem Bowder today, Scarlett, the idea of Chairman Greenspan and others being way out front Mm. on productivity dynamics in the 90s. And yet here we are in in this decade with a huge mystery about where productivity is. A lot of head scratching on that. Productivity clearly top of mind for you, Chairman Greenspan. Productivity in Washington is something I want to explore now because... We could, of course, get a government shutdown this week, although Mitch McConnell is trying to introduce a bill to avoid that. 
Do you worry that the political situation we're in right now with the split Congress uh, will intensify gridlock and make even the debt ceiling a big contentious issue, a big fight that could upend markets and pose a threat to the economy? I'm very much concerned about the political system. Uh, I mean, I was in the U.S. government for almost 20 years. I've never seen, I never saw anything remotely close to what we're observing today. And I think the economic outlook well, is being significantly affected by the politics. In your generous time with us this, this, this afternoon, Chairman Greenspan, let's pause here then on where we are within our American political system. Do you find a permanence to the populism today, or do we rebound out of this administration, whether it's one term or two terms, back to a more traditional political system? Well, let's remember what caused the populism, which causes populism throughout the world, mainly in Latin America, is when the growth rate slows yes. down. And when the growth rate slows down, <clears throat> you get a, a, a very strong political response and the person or group of people who come on the scene saying, we feel your pain, get very considerable attention. Remember that uh, populism is not a philosophy like communism or capitalism or socialism. It's a, it's a crime, it's a, it's a cry of pain. People saying, uh, help us, we are hurting. And somebody comes along and says, I have the solution. And that person, historically, has always been very effective in gaining public office. And, of course, we see that in the U.S. We also see that across the world as well. I know you're very worried about Europe, um, calling it an unstable situation. There seems to be some stability found in Italy with the EC approving Italy's budget. Talk about how the concerns, what specifically you're concerned about in Europe and how that will spill over into the U.S., if at all. Well, I think Europe is in a much more precarious situation than we know or listen to. And the reason I think uh, that's a fact is that very few people observe the, the extraordinary events that have occurred in uh, Target 2. That's the so-called clearing mechanism of the central banks of, that make up the Eurozone. <coughs> uh, what has happened in the Eurozone is only one bank, namely the Deutsche Bundesbank, <coughs> has accumulated two-thirds of the right. estimated revenues, and that is causing very serious right. potential problems in the longer run. Chairman Greenspan, to your new book, Capitalism in America, and I loved Robert Gordon of Northwestern's uh, review of it in the Financial Times, which I thought was very, very uh, balanced. One of the great ideas that Robert Gordon addresses is America's decline. I want you to speak to our audience this morning about what the elites need to do to move on what, from what so many perceive to be a gilded age. How do we move from gilded ages that we've had over our history onto a more fairer system? How do we do that? Uh, I think, as we discuss in the book in some detail, uh, there are really two focuses on policy that uh, I think are critical to look at. By far the most important is the issue of entitlements. I have nothing to say negative about entitlements if you fund them. But if you don't fund them, you create a very significant 
acceleration in the deficit, and the deficit ultimately leads to inflation. It always has, it always will. It's always, however, with a lag. And I think it's that issue which we have to address. The second one is to recognize what the causes of a 2008-type crisis is. It's essentially some toxic asset, like uh, securitized mortgages, funded uh, basically uh, incompletely. In other words, if it's a, if it's a leveraged, if you if you get a lot of leverage along with the toxic asset, you get the potential for significant economic crises. And I'm glad you bring that up, um, leveraged loans, because that's come up in conversation quite a bit. You talk about toxic assets. Are leveraged loans those toxic assets that could lead us uh, to the next downturn? Uh, I'm looking. I haven't seen any as yet. But the problem essentially is when you get down to this level of, of uh, basically economic growth, uh, they tend to arise. I don't, have, I don't have a forecast at the moment. Chairman Greenspan, I'd like you to address uh, Paul Volcker's new book that he did with our Christine Harper as well. We had such an era there of Volcker onto Greenspan, uh, the challenges of high inflation rates and then your approach to a more measured policy uh, through the great disinflation. Describe the contribution that we saw from Chairman Volcker. Uh, as I've said on in numerous occasions, uh, Volcker has been controlling the extraordinary inflation uh, that he had to confront uh, was under huge, uh, I would say, battery. I mean, I was there and I remember. And he was stalwart, and I would say the actions that he took in no. holding down the inflation rate were the most important policy decision made by the Federal Reserve System in its history. Mr. Chairman, one more question, if we could, this afternoon, and that is on what we heard from John Williams 10 days ago, 15 days ago, about once again getting back to targeting the top-line economic growth of the nation, taking into account real GDP and inflation combined. This is a raging debate. You've been in the heat of that debate for decades. Should we target real GDP or should we target America's animal spirit is indicated by nominal GDP. I think we do both. You don't basically try to simplify the forecast. You have to look at what's forcing the economy to do what it is. And uh, uh, unless, if you have a situation like today where the entitlements are going to create ever larger deficits, and the deficits as such don't have a political force. Man, it's fascinating to watch that when you get deficits, it's only when they create inflation that you get a political response. So we have very little chance politically of resolving these issues until we get a rise in inflation. Uh, that's not over the immediate horizon. But in the book, we, demonstrate, we, we, we argue uh, that there is stagflation on the horizon. Mm. And that uh, that's a very dangerous pr pr outlook. 
Certainly is. Before we let you go, uh, Chairman Greenspan, I know you don't comment on uh, Jay Powell or any current Fed chair and their decisions, but I was wondering if you would indulge me in a hypothetical. What would you have done? What would you do if the president was tweeting at you with and there's political interference, the public rebukes yeah. for whatever decision you we, make? We should explain to the chairman the tweeting is social media, Mr. Chairman. I know you're not doing this at home. But all these messages that we see from President Trump. That's right. This is not William McChesney Martin, is it, Mr. Greenspan? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Look, uh, the president and all other political figures have a right to state their opinions. Uh, As you know, I was in government for almost 20 years, and I don't remember a single instance when a political figure, whether it was a president or otherwise, argued in favor of the Fed raising rates. Yeah. Yeah. I had innumerable cases of the opposite. Then we turn to another bad week of headlines for Facebook. The New York Times reported that for years, the social media giant had given some of the biggest tech companies more intrusive access to users' personal data than was ever disclosed. Washington, D.C.'s Attorney General Carl Racine sued the social media giant over privacy allegations stemming from the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And if that wasn't enough, a new report commissioned by the Senate Intel Committee showed that Instagram was even a bigger tool of Russian influence than Facebook itself. We talked about it all with Matthew Patsky, CEO of Trillium Asset Management, who is a Facebook shareholder himself. We started by asking if he thought they would start making changes to regain user and investor trust. Uh, We are certainly hoping that they will take action. Obviously, this has gotten much worse than we thought um, on the the level of the privacy breaches and the recent news of the fact that they were continuing to to sell uh, personal data to uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and other big tech firms is is, uh, new information. Um, Certainly, the aftermath of Cambridge Analytics and the lawsuit we just saw today from the attorney general from the District of Columbia, I think, was to be expected that we would see some action taken uh, to, to respond to that breach. But um, we're we're looking at there being corrective action taken by uh, if Mark Zuckerberg doesn't agree to it. There's a problem getting anything done, as you know, because of the super majority control he has. Just from a valuation standpoint, how much corrective action is actually needed to lift the stock? Or could we be close to a point, essentially, where there's so much negativity that even if they sort of plot along with scandal after scandal after scandal, it's still just such a big cash flow generator that they don't even need to do that much to make a bull case. Right. That's probably a valid argument, which is the stock's down from 219 to 133. Have we hit a base here where the valuation itself will hold? Uh, The only thing I would argue is that if we really want to get the stock going again and get, getting to a reasonable valuation, we need there to be corrective action on corporate governance. If we try to look back and say, how did we get us, how did we get here? We got here because there isn't a good corporate governance structure here. We got here because Mark Zuckerberg reports to Mark Zuckerberg, and there needs to be some control systems in place to make sure that we have systems in place to, that there is accountability within Facebook. But, Matthew, how do you get to that corrective action for, for a company that's already structured itself this way? And Facebook is obviously just one of many tech companies that have gone public with, uh, you know, some rather stringent uh, structures that sort of, you know, push out uh, sure. average shareholders. So how do we get there? Yeah, when you, 
When you have, I mean, the Snapchat example of where there was absolutely no votes for the public shareholders is one we won't invest in. Uh, when there is supermajority voting, what we do ask for is that there at least be an independent chairman of the board. We, are, uh, we have a shareholder proposal before the board right now. That we, we ask the board and Mark Zuckerberg as part of that board to look very seriously at the destruction of value for shareholders and how that value could be restored. And one of the ways we would, would argue uh, we could start to move in that direction is by him giving up the chair role mm. and allowing an independent chair of the board. Matthew, we're starting to see once again high profile people saying that they're going to be leaving the Facebook site. They're still going to be sticking with Instagram and the like, but they're certainly starting to move away right. from Facebook. It, does it have to be a vote of by the feet of those that use Facebook to eventually push you out of the stock entirely? What, what might we see where you feel that there's just no recourse that you can make, certainly from a corporate governance perspective, right. and what then eventually makes you think that actually from a, a money-generating perspective it's no longer attractive? Yeah, we're looking at both the, the environmental, social, and governance structures, obviously, as being relevant. But in the, in the financial side, obviously, we think that if the company does not restore confidence with the users, that they'll start to bleed more and we'll end up looking with this starting to, to uh, the valuation starting to be in question because of loss of users. So I, I agree the valuation is low right now. It looks relatively low. It only doesn't, it only will start to look, um, un, you know, unreasonable in terms of valuation if we start to see that they start to lose users. Um, certainly we're of the belief it's correctable, which is why we're staying in it right now. And we continue to press the management team to try to make those corrections. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week also saw some splashy new deals for cannabis companies. Tilray is going global with the help of a partnership with Swiss drug giant Novartis. So he talked with Vivian Azer, senior analyst at Cowan & Company, about what this legacy partnership could mean for the industry. We certainly think it's incredibly encouraging, which it really validates the use cases for cannabis on a global scale. What's really differentiated is that Tilray is really the only large public Canadian LP that is really focused on pharma mm -hmm. as a strategic partner, where you've seen Canopy Growth partner with Constellation Brands, right. Hexo with Molson Coors, and then most recently Kronos with tobacco maker Altria. I thought that was the most interesting part of this deal is, I mean, we talk so much about the recreational use. I guess that's the more sensational story. But I wonder what, what do you see are, as the prospects for the medicinal and pharmacological side of this industry? You know, what we can already see in terms of reported financials is that the medical opportunity is very attractive, both in terms of the average revenue that you can generate per gram of cannabis sold into medical-only channels, as well as the margin potential um, because of that higher price point. And so we're starting to see early evidence of that in Germany, but the real opportunity is looking beyond Germany to the 35 countries outside of North America that have either legalized medical cannabis or are on their way to doing so. How is that pace going at the moment? Where do you see the legalization continuing 
And what about U.S. legalization in particular? So from a global standpoint, it tends to happen in fits and starts. So on November 1st, the United Kingdom legalized cannabis for medical use, which is something even six months before that I wouldn't have anticipated. But as is also true in the United States, the initial legalization is very narrow in terms of the permissible indication. So it does take time to actually expand the market so that you can address more consumer needs. Same thing in the United States, fits and starts. In markets where cannabis is already legal for uh Uh, medical purposes. Do we see the traditional medical establishment, actual doctors, are they bringing it into their therapies yet? Or is it still kind of like the doctors that you see like on Venice Beach, which don't, I'm not sure if they really, you know. You get what I'm saying. I do. Uh, No, you are seeing legitimate physicians um, start to embrace the plant. A lot of it comes down to education. But if you look at what happened in the uh, medical market in Florida, there was really a direct correlation with onboarding of patients and doctors that were going through the continuing education process to get certified to write those scripts. We just have a big farm bill here in the U.S., which focused a lot on hemp. And we know that a lot of companies are kind of moving into hemp and the byproduct of that CBD. Um, What do you see the prospects for, particularly for U.S. growers, U.S. companies? Because this has always been a Canadian story so far, but we're sort of getting closer to legalization here in the U.S. And I wonder, does that sort of spell a shift away from the Canadian market to the U.S.? Uh, No, I think the U.S. hemp-derived CBD opportunity is one that global players um, are keenly focused on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we know that a tobacco company that I cover, Turning Point Brands, has made a move into the CBD market back in November. They announced that. But similarly, Canopy Growth has said quite explicitly that they plan on entering the U.S. CBD market by the end of 2019. Vivian, remind us where we stand in terms of market valuations now. Tilray, after today's moves, market cap $7 billion. Do you think these are vindicated? I do. You know, the way that we think about valuation methodology is to really um, give the company's credit and the stock's credit for the explosive revenue growth that we do expect to see. So we're using essentially a revenue version of a peg ratio. Then we switch gears to equality in commodities. The recent plunge in oil prices is good news for American consumers because it means lower household expenses. This is critical because almost one third of families across the U.S. are having trouble paying their utility bills, especially in low income communities. And when it comes to crafting the nation's energy policies, minorities are frequently missing from the decision-making process. Scarlett sat down with Paula Glover, CEO of the American Association of Blacks in Energy, and asked about some of the challenges she sees. There's an enormous energy equality, and there's and what I would describe as energy poverty, right? So households who spend typically more than 10% of their bill on energy costs, which also includes transportation, just not your utility bills, would be considered energy poor. And so if you look at kind of the landscape, um, you have a lot of people who kind of fit within that bucket of being energy poor. And then if you look at minority communities and then just low-income communities, generally speaking, um, it's inequitable. You know, they may be spending 30, 40, 50 percent of their income on energy services um, and therefore making different types of choices between what do I buy for food, do I pay my light bill. Um, so it's, it's a really very serious issue. Right, making the hard decisions on what you actually pay for. Obviously, uh, the energy industry in the U.S. has 
changed. There's a shale revolution going on, a shale mm -hmm. boom. Yes. How has that changed what you are pushing for? I think for us as an organization, what it's, what it's done is made us be even more focused about how do you increase representation in this industry? And not just in terms of workforce, but also in terms of small business um, participation. What the shale boom has taught us is that we find resources now closer to areas where people of color live, right? So you see it in Michigan, Western Pennsylvania, in Texas, far more urban areas than previously when we would find these resources. That increases the opportunity for people to kind of get involved in the business. And the biggest challenge is really how do you let people know what's happening, what are those opportunities, how are we doing um, this kind of extraction in a safe and environmentally safe way, um, and just developing your own message. And I would suggest as an industry, we haven't been great at just developing our own message and narrative about the work that we do. What is the most effective way of doing that then? I think it's a lot of stuff. I think it's, you know, how do you partner with small organizations, not just like myself, but even community organizations and community organizers, and be really transparent as an industry about what you're doing. Um, and understand that that's a long process, right? You can't show up in a community on Monday and think everybody's going to be your friend by Friday, um, that you're going to have to really spend a lot of time talking about what you're doing and then hearing from people what their concerns are, um, if they've had a particularly negative interaction with the industry, what that was and how we begin to build long-term relationships. What are some of the best practices that you have found can be applied to other parts of the country, other communities? You know, I think what we are seeing is um, different sectors of the industry do it um, differently. I think everyone is really challenged by how do they reach diverse communities. Um, and there's probably an element of trust that's not there. Um, and so if you're talking about um, oil and natural gas, um, that may be one kind of conversation and companies are doing that. If you're talking about a utility company where people are engaged with that utility all the time because they're getting a bill from them, mm -hmm. but now expanding that conversation beyond, like, I need you to pay your light bill or your gas bill, but I really want you to look at me as an opportunity for an employer. Mm -hmm. I want to do business with your small business. Um, and so, you know, companies, I think, approach it differently, but they do a, a decent job. Do you think there's more attention being paid to this than there was, say, more than 40 years ago when your organization first began? I mean, the mission has not changed for your organization, but the yes. circumstances have. The circumstances have changed, and certainly way more attention has been um, being paid to this because of the demographic shifts in the country, right? So diversity and inclusion has been a long-time conversation, first starting with diversity, then we talk about diversity and inclusion. Um, but now when you're seeing the demographics of the country change, it's about, you know, all these other things, right? So first it used to be, well, it's altruistic. We should just do it because it's the right thing to do. And then you start to see a series of studies that show that when you had um, increased numbers of women in the C-suite, if you had increased more diverse boards, um, companies financially did better. Mm -hmm. um, but now you're also seeing that what we know is that the U.S. in the next 10 to 20 years is going to be majority minority and in some portions of the country that's already happening. Mm -hmm. And so if companies aren't making a really um, big effort to kind of bring everybody in, it really does just start to talk about, so what is your workforce going to look like, mm -hmm. right? You can't really function with a workforce that is 90% Caucasian if the community in which you serve is 50% African-American. Those two numbers just don't show up. So what I haven't heard from you so far, you mentioned community organizers. What about the government? What about the public sector and how they fit in here with this conversation? I think that's a part of it. I think what I, what I would say is that this, this conversation also expands beyond energy. So the government is absolutely involved. And starting in, I believe, 2014, we've seen some legislation that's really talked about the 21st century energy 
bill that had been um, introduced by Congressman Bobby Rush, and it was a bipartisan bill um, that has eventually been passed. Um, but that whole bill was really built around how can the government support these efforts. And I thought what was unique was that it didn't just look at what contributions the Department of Energy can make, but it also looked at how do you partner with the Department of Education, right? Workforce is not just about the jobs now. It's about the jobs that we're going to have 20 years from now. And when you start talking about communities that may not be participating already, you've now got to start talking about some other issues that may be out there. And public education is absolutely one of them. We mentioned workforce of the future. What about energy sources of the future? There's also solar energy. Yeah. Um, how accessible is this for the black community? I think it's all accessible. Um, we hosted a hackathon just a week ago, and one of the, the question problem statements we were discussing is how do you increase the um, viability of solar in urban communities? How do you make sure that more people are able to take um, to participate in it, particularly when solar and wind, for that matter, have a fairly large footprint. So it gets a little bit complicated. You've got to be a little bit more creative. But I think things like community solar then all of a sudden makes it more accessible accessible to other people. Um, you've got to start thinking about um, people who may not be homeowners and renters. Um, but if I'm a homeowner for myself, I live in a very old home. I have a 100-year house. So how does that, how, how, how can I install solar in my home given new technology and old infrastructure? Um, but solar, wind, biofuel, all of that, I think, is more, is more accessible than it ever has been. Mm. Um, but we still need a lot more technology to be market ready to make it so that if we have goals that say 50% renewables in this country, battery storage is absolutely key to making that a real reality. Um, and I think part of the job of us as an association is to also educate and inform people of the challenges that exists so that young people can begin to think of what the solutions are. Right. Final question to you. As I mentioned, American Association of Blacks and Energy has been around for more than 40 years. The, your mission has stayed the same. From where you sit, what's one thing that's changed and what's one thing that hasn't changed? I think the one thing that has changed is we as an organization are more present in these conversations than we ever have been. Um, and we have been um, increasingly more present, not only on the federal level, but start looking at state policy because state policy um, can drive federal policy in reverse, and yes. states marry, you know, they follow each other. Um, the other thing that has changed for us is that we're also looking at regulatory policy um, and that in industries that are heavily regulated, it's not just about laws that Congress passes, but it is rulemaking that happens in the DOE, Interior, EPA, um, FERC, all of these other regulatory bodies also impact the policy. And so for us, that's the one thing that's changed is how can we now begin to in, um, engage and inform on all of these different platforms. Um, and I think the thing that um, unfortunately hasn't changed is that we're still an unknown entity in many ways and so we are a very small organization um, and we look for opportunities to kind of we have to be creative and innovative in terms of how we're going to get our word out and let people know that we're a resource available to them and that's it for what you missed this week if you like the show make sure to subscribe and rate us at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.